0: Welcome to Cabot Conversations, produced by the Cabot Institute for the Environment at the University of Bristol. We are a diverse community of 600 experts united by a common cause, protecting our environment and identifying ways of living better with our changing planet. This podcast series brings together our experts and collaborators to discuss complex environmental challenges and solutions to climate change. In this episode, Professor Valeska Ting and Professor Dale Southerton discuss a whole systems approach to net zero. You can find out more about the Cabot Institute for the Environment at bristol.ac.uk forward slash cabot.
1: Yeah, I'm Dale Southerton. I'm a professor of consumption studies in the School of Management at the University of Bristol. And my research over the last 20 years has focused on, in broad terms, how societies change, particularly focusing on the way that people live their day-to-day lives, their patterns of consumption, and the resource intensity of those patterns of consumption. So I'm really interested in the way we live our lives, the way we organise things from our kitchens, our laundry, the energy consumption embedded in those practices, how they escalate over a period of time and how they get locked into our everyday practices. And lots of my work is focused on, on that. And tell me a bit about what you, you do.
0: Well, f- first of all, I'm, I'm glad you explained consumption because I, I, I thought it was like a medical term. <laughs> yeah, I'm a professor of consumption. No, um, uh, well, so my name's Valeska Ting. I'm a professor of smart nanomaterials in uh, mechanical engineering at Bristol. Uh, and my interest is in uh, looking at materials for energy storage, so for applications like uh, like using hydrogen instead of uh, instead of fossil fuels for for low carbon transportation, and uh, and looking at ways that we can we can store energy for later use, so that we can increase the the use of um, sustainable resources like solar and wind power. Um, yeah, but it, it, so so it seems like we're, we're coming from net zero from two quite different perspectives.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I was going to ask I mean, what are the, so what, in, I mean, nanomaterials, I mean, that sounds really, <laughs> <laughs> so all it, all it <laughs> means is really small materials, <laughs> so, <laughs> I know that bit, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but what, so what are the really big things then in nanomaterials in terms of solutions or capabilities, or?
0: Well, the, the neat thing is that um, so the the point about nanomaterials is that when you shrink something down to to those sorts of nanometer or angstrom sizes, so so we're talking about you know thousands of times smaller than the diameter of a human hair, then the properties of the materials really start to change. And so so the stuff that I'm interested in, you're you're looking at materials that have nanoscale pores in them. So uh, imagine a kitchen sponge but shrunk down thousands of times. But, um, but because they've got these tiny pores, they, instead of sucking in water like a sponge would, they, they can suck in molecules like hydrogen. And so, so you get these materials and they've, they've got huge surface areas. So one, one teaspoon of these materials can have the same surface area as a football pitch. And and so so these these materials can suck in huge amounts of hydrogen, and so you can carry around um, this this gaseous fuel really safely in a small volume. And and it's it's all because of these tiny tiny pores. So we're we're developing materials with new pores so that they can store more hydrogen, and you can you can drive your cars further
1: because. Okay, I mean, it's a, it's, I, mean I always find that the technical. Amazing. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling and so on, but so so are you developing those kinds of nano hydrogen hydrogen storage pores or With particularly with transport in mind
0: Yeah, well because I, I, I think it's one of the biggest problems at the moment if, if you're looking at, at uh, uh, Carbon dioxide emissions or any sort of emissions. So transport is is a huge um, proportion of, of that, and it, uh, also if you're looking at um, at just general air quality as well. Um, so if, if if we can take fossil fuels out of the equation, then suddenly we're we're looking at uh, at more sustainable transportation. You're not contributing to um, to you know bad air quality or or, or um, global warming uh, to the same extent. But I, I suppose that, you know, you can you can develop a technology, but you can't you can't just have that technology in isolation. Right. It's it's part of a, a bigger system.
1: Now, I was going to ask if. if um, so from from a social science, from my perspective, from a social science perspective, you know, the technological capabilities are wonderful, great and amazing. But they might fear is that they start with an assumption that the way we live our lives now is the way we should live our lives in the future and therefore we lock in problematic behaviours by developing the technologies to lock ourselves into those behaviours so um, that the hydrogen solution to cars is only a solution to making our existing patterns of mobility less um, energy consuming or or less polluting which is fine but it doesn't it sort of depends on us continuing to drive cars around as individuals and so on whereas from a I suppose from a social science perspective you might start with a question of well why do we drive around like we do I mean if if I was an alien looking into our societies I would think it was crazy that we have these things which cost a huge amount of our disposable income that hardly ever move so I don't know that you know cars spend most of their time not moving just parked somewhere Are often not quite fit for the purpose because you know most of I've got a reasonably big car because I've got three adult kids but most of the time it's just me in it so I've got a car for capacity to take my kids to and from university which I do two or three times a year it's silly it's crazy so why do I own that car why does it take up such an amount of my income? Why does, why is 50% of urban space taken up by car storage, car parking and so on? Well, it seems crazy. Whereas you could have a, a slightly, you know, actually a completely different system where we don't own cars at all and we rent cars or lease cars. I mean, these systems are out there in, in Oslo, Rome. They've got great systems for, you know, you don't own, the, nobody owns, well, Actually, people do own a car, but people who are part of these schemes don't own a car. They use different technology, so they'll go up to the windscreen, window screen, with their phone, tap it on the phone that logs them in. They drive the car that fits the size of the car that they want to drive.
0: So, is it like the electric scooters that we've got around Bristol, like the tap and go? It's
1: exactly like the electric scooters that we've got in Bristol, only for cars.
0: That is so cool. I didn't, I didn't even know you could do that.
1: So that you know, they're just. That's not to say that I don't think that the kinds of um, alternative fuel solutions are not important because they're really, really important because, you know, we are going to have cars and we will need them. So on, But we could also think about, so from my perspective, I want to be thinking about, well, let's disincentivize private ownership of cars and instead have collaborative forms of ownership of cars so I can walk out my house, pick the size of car that I need for the journey that I'm doing pay for the mileage of that journey and then somebody else is responsible for maintaining the car somebody else is responsible for the churn rate of cars so we don't have so many old cars on the road and so on and so on it's just a different system for delivering in my language um, travel practices or mobility practices
0: yeah i do wonder whether we're just too tied to the convention of, of having a private car like, so, so yeah, engineering, you're, you're, you're so close to the industrial side and industry is, is, you know, inherently uh, like when, when you're looking at at say development of a plane, it'll take them 30 years to, to design a new plane and get it in the air. And then it's got a, a 30 year, um, uh, like cycle yeah, lifespan. And so, so you, I, I guess industry is a bit more risk-averse, and so just having uh, a drop-in solution or, or, or something where uh, the the person driving the car doesn't even know that it's a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle or a battery electric vehicle. It's just you know they get in, press go and they go like that so yeah that, that seems like a lazy way now.
1: Of that logic of those of markets like that, the technology has to substitute for what we've currently got yeah yeah So you have to try and make your electric car or your hydrogen car mimic as much as possible the cars we've got used to because it's the only way to sell them because you're selling them in a private market whereas if you think of the types of systems i was talking about you know you've got companies then would be buying en masse it's not the consumer's responsibility to maintain the car it doesn't matter to the consumer that the car costs three times the cost of a, a normal petrol car, so the rate of diffusion can be far faster.
0: But, but what do you think about? Um, because I, I guess this has been on people's minds because of the pandemic, right? And we haven't been we haven't been flying, we haven't been driving. So you, you think people's perspectives on you know what what sort of transportation we need or um, whether we need it at all? Do you think that will change?
1: I mean, who knows we all want to we all want to get out and we all want to go and just drive our cars for the sake of it just to, just get out of our towns that <laughs> we're living in I don't think I've left my town for many many months um I think that what the pandemic does is show very tangibly that the way we live our lives can change quite quickly and quite radically so for my my frustration is always that there is a tendency particularly in some parts of policy to think of human behavior as ins- essentially conservative and slow to change and i don't think that's true i think you know it depends where you're looking but human behavior change can change quite quite rapidly and we've seen that with with the pandemic and that's because there's all sorts of constraints on our on our lives but what will happen is anyone's guess but you know, we have in a sense turbocharged our capacity to have meetings like we're having now online. Um, only a few months before, well, a few weeks before the lockdown last year, I'm on the University Sustainability Council. And we were talking about a policy for more online meetings so that staff could reduce their travel to work. And it was seen just, was actually just before lockdown it was seen as too difficult to achieve with people who are not familiar with the technology with the etiquette of how to speak to one another on an online meeting and then out of necessity we've learned all of those skills it's you know my my parents who are old now do zoom meetings with my kids and stuff all the time so so we've learned very quickly how to use those technologies the key Thing will be what happens when we come out of lockdown and whether or not we're in a sense forced back into the old rhythms of our day-to-day lives so if we have more more homework in if the University of Bristol decides we don't need to build loads of new buildings and instead we could have um, work from home policies and more shared offices so when you and I come in rather than have our own, I'm sure you've got your own office, in the university I haven't seen it in months but yeah it's very rare for a professor not to have a have their own office but you know we you walk around any university building and there's lots of offices and not many people in them because lots of academics work from home and work in different places and so on that's another crazy thing to have you know across all universities as far as I can tell in the UK there's all of these occupied offices with nobody in them so we could have much more effective use of our space, much more effective use of our of the amount of times we do travel in and out of Bristol to go to work. And that's across all sorts of organizations. I know insurance companies who are working on strategies to give up their, their offices and instead have one central point which staff can go in and use when they need to. So it won't be the end of face-to-face meetings. So these are shifts. the way we've organized we're organizing our work life that could significantly reduce our need to travel
0: well this idea of of, of changing mindsets i I think it's is so interesting because i'm thinking back now like what so when when i first started um uh working in the uk i i was at the university of southampton but um but i lived in bristol (laughs) and so i used to i used to take the train every day and it was it was ridiculous it was like three and a half hours there and and four hours back when once you factor in the buses and the trains and it was just this idea that if you work in a place you you have to be physically in that place um to to carry out your work whereas we've shown now like we we were just talking I, I haven't been in my office for for months but the the communications and the uh, and the, the thinking and the collaboration, that can still all go on without people yeah. having to travel for hours a day, miles a day.
1: In many ways, it can be more effective, but mm. then you end up with, you know, we all also missing our work colleagues and those conversations in the corridor. But, you know, one of the outcomes could be that you start to see um, the, re- the regeneration of local, local communities, local high streets, local businesses. I mean, you'll see some death of coffee shops in city centres, but you may well start to see more more local activities, which is also quite good for net zero. Um, If we're more engaged in our local communities, we um, feel more connected to our local communities, then that's also um, potentially positive for the way in which, from me, we go about our consumption. So less travelling into cities and more walking into your high street to do your consumption um, is is another reduction of the energy use that's added in our day-to-day practices
0: so i'm 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 thinking now because we're we're talking about two sides like so one of them is i i guess uh taking a view where you can uh you can do a behind-the-scenes swap of of, uh, <laughs> of of carbon intense fossil fuels for, for more sustainable or, or lower-carbon fuels, um, yeah. and 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 basically by by doing that, um, people don't realize that that they're um, that they're using less carbon and and they don't have to change their behaviours. But then you can couple that with with getting people to be conscious that if, if they if they Turn the heating down or or don't don't fly as much, then they're they're also contributing. It'll be interesting to find out what, what sort of ratio that's at. Sorry, that's an engineer in me. It's like, a, like which one contributes more?
1: I think it's a really important question. And, and I was gonna, you know, I'm interested to know how engineers think about some of these questions about behavior change and so on, because you know that that you know, you need the more um, resource-efficient technologies. That's really, really important. But what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is um, we we have more efficiency per unit of consumption because of technological innovation and more consumption. And the more consumption outstrips the efficiency, so the net effect to the environment is still getting worse. So we can't just rely on essentially technological efficiencies some technological innovations open up the possibility of significant behavior change. So the digital, digital platforms and the car sharing type schemes, I mean, it's the digital platforms that enable these, these things to happen. If you look at digital, digital technologies in terms of our entertainment and communication, that's we think increased the resource intensity or the, of consuming music, for example. We don't buy CDs anymore, we buy less books and there's less material resources embedded in that, that consumption and there are server costs and so on. So technological innovation can invent new practices or invent new behaviours and that's, so that's really quite important. But um, I generally think, based on the sort of empirical evidence, that there is not so much a task out there to persuade people to change their behaviour surveys for a very long time have shown that the vast majority of people really really care about the environment and really want to be pro-environmental and actually do lots of what we might think of as relatively small tasks so you think of recycling the reduction of food waste in UK households is huge it's massive We We've made some really big big shifts if you look at the way that supermarkets deliver food and their distribution. I mean, we've made some massive gains over the over the last 15-20 years, but the problem is still still there. So I think there is a real emphasis needed on governments to create the conditions in which you can both have the technological substitution effects that we talked about, use new technologies to create new ways of organising our day-to-day lives, um, and actually create you know leading by creating new sets of constraints on people's behavior so the London congestion charge you know I think someone will have to go and look at the actual statistics but you know the day before the London congestion charge the vast majority of Londoners were against it and two weeks after they were for it they you know to so it's wrong to I think it's wrong to think that you have to persuade people's attitudes before you seek to change their behavior usually attitudes in my view attitudes follow behavior not not trigger behavior so if you seek to change people's behavior and they see it works and it's good and it's better for their lives then they'll have a positive attitude towards it so
0: I'm thinking about um, you know what, what you were saying about the re- recycling and uh, and and how, how people will will have these interventions to um, to try and uh, lead a more sustainable life, uh, but I guess just thinking because one of the reasons I went into material science and research in the first place was because I, I was thinking, is is this enough? Like, do, like don't we have to change the the whole of the way that we manufacture things? And and I think the scale of the problem is something that is quite hard to wrap your head around. Yeah,
1: no, I completely agree with that. If behavior change on its own is not going to be it's nowhere near enough.
0: Yeah, but at the, at the same time, I think you, you, it's an important pu- piece of the puzzle because, like, uh, so if I think about the the interventions that we're working on in engineering, you're looking at things like using using digital prototyping or VR to um, so that you you can speed up the manufacturing process and, and use um, less material, and, and so there's less material waste. You make the manufacturing process um, faster, cheaper, better, more efficient. Lower carbon, but if you're pumping out twice as many sets of sneakers, <laughs> it, it, it's not really uh, it's like low low carbon or sustainable, right? Yeah,
1: yeah uh, exactly, completely. And I, I think, yeah, there was a period about ten or fifteen years ago, in particular, where there was a sort of strong narrative from from policy, from governments, and so on, that if only we could change people's behaviour, everything else will follow. And it was never going. To, it's never going to be enough to just change people's behavior. You, we need. We need to invest in the technological innovation to do exactly the things that you're talking about. But we can't just go for technology fixes. We also have to do behavior. So it'd be really nice to have co- more coordinated policy that that thinks across these three dimensions of change, rather than. I mean, it seems to flip-flop one way or the other and place more emphasis on on one one set of solutions than any other so some sort of coordinated vision of what futures might look like
0: we're getting to to that systems thinking now aren't we like (laughs) bringing all of this together
1: what would it look what what's the what's the future of mobility does it look what's the mix between hydrogen and electric vehicles and you know one, one thing for me is that social scientists are particularly poor as, as is obvious from this conversation uh, understanding the technological possibilities so I think you know that's a problem for for social science in particular
0: oh, not not necessarily because like a, 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 again if you have a, like a, the ideal would be if you if you had drop-in solutions and and then people wouldn't even notice that you're, you're using different technologies. But, but to, so, so just to explain a bit though, so the, the solution I guess is complicated because you've got different energy sources and, and, and different solutions for um, different forms of transportation for different occasions. So like for, for example, if you're just pottering around in a city, Bristol, then, then a battery electric vehicle it's is perfectly fine. Like, um, uh, it's, it's zero emissions as long as your electricity comes from, say, wind or solar. Um, it's really efficient. Uh, but the, the difficulties there are when you start to go longer range. So if you want to drive um, from, from here to Aberdeen, then, then uh, you, you're going to have to drive, uh, stop when your battery is discharged, wait till it charges up, and, and uh, that, that charge, discharge, um, time lag is something that consumers aren't used to. So that's when you use something like hydrogen. And the, and the same for intercontinental flight. Like, um, so if you, if you wanted to do short-haul flights, then you can use batteries. Um, if you want to go from here to Australia, there's no way you could carry that weight of batteries. So that's why industry is looking at, at things like hydrogen, which is a really light but uh, energy-dense fuel in terms of weight. So um, so you're looking at different solutions for different applications.
1: So, but would that then mean you have an, a car that's, that runs on electric battery when you're doing local trips but when you want to drive to Aberdeen, it switches to hydrogen mode?
0: Yeah, you could, you, you could have a hybrid system, yeah, yeah. But I do think, like, uh, because I, I, I like your model where, where you have, um, you, you might have two different vehicles um, and, and as you say, if you want to drop your, your kids off at university three times a year, uh, and if it's far away, then you just opt in for the, the hydrogen vehicle and, and use it over those long distances. And for the rest of the time, you use a battery electric vehicle around around the city. And so, so because the, the thing is, if you have all vehicles with, with these dual power systems, like with the batteries plus the hydrogen, that's twice as much infrastructure that you have to manufacture and put in the car and so if you can again looking at changing people's behaviors or their expectations so that they only use the vehicle that they need for that particular purpose
1: yeah because the transition to if if those kinds of vehicles are really expensive and the transition we've got building the infrastructure and so on is going to be very slow and of course you know it's going to take 10 15 20 years whereas you know if you switch the expectations around you know, not owning cars to that kind of model it could happen quite quickly you would need to invest in the infrastructure so governments could facilitate and incentivize those whole systems type approaches to encourage companies to invest i mean because we actually it's a bit like home ownership you know not many people you know the number of people who don't own their car is really high most people have a loan, a finance arrangement or a lease hire arrangement to their car ownership. So they don't actually own the car anyway. They're essentially renting a car. So, you, you know, it's not that big a leap from where current consumer behaviour is around cars.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is, is yeah, again, the perspective or the ex, the expectation. So if you if you see your car as a status symbol, then it's like, <laughs> oh, it's my car. So it
1: involves marketing, and because marketing has worked on that basis, you know you are associated with your car and as part of your identity. But even better for you, if you can pick the car for whichever form of status you want at any particular time. So, you know, if you're trying to impress a a boss or you know a new partner, you could you could pay that little bit extra and turn up in a whatever sports car.
0: Um, I can see the ad for the ride sharing scheme right now it's... <laughs>
1: yeah exactly so you can still market it still... Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, the other side of what, what we were talking about though was like uh do you do you think people will still need to drive as much or fly as much now that they know you know you you, you can contact people easily over zoom you can work wherever you want live wherever you
1: want well, I think that's you know that's part of what's interesting about the pandemic and and all of that I think if nothing is done and in fact I think that the constraints on people's behavior will push them back to driving in and out of Bristol to go to work again because there'll be expectations that they should be in the office there's a car that's sat on their drive that's not been driven for a year so the you know the slippage back into normal is all the old normal is likely to be be quite strong I think but you know it is so I think it's an opportunity at this moment to think about the way in which we organize our day-to-day lives to make them better and more equitable I don't think working from home is the answer because it's different for different people and we don't have a domestic a home infrastructure that's you know really designed for working from home
0: yeah that was going to be my question to you like what so because it's so depressing to think that people will have to go back to commuting in uh to their jobs and 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 what could we do to to I guess shift that that expectation
1: yeah I mean I think people I mean I don't know what everybody thinks I know it's very mixed views for lots of different social groups but rich professional middle class people like us we can often choose to go in to work at seven o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock in the morning um we often we've got more resources so we can choose different modes of travel much easier but there's a lot of people who have to be in work by nine o'clock have to queue down the m32 um probably in an old car because there isn't many other public transport opportunities available to them and then pay a lot of money to sit and put that car in a car park all day so you know there are real opportunities to Reduce the amount of travel we do. I'm not sure about flying. I think that's a different thing altogether. I don't think flying and car driving are the same practice at all. If you look at who flies and how frequently they fly, there's a a significant difference between the the small minority of largely white, middle-class professional people who do a hell of a lot of flying and the rest of the population. It may may go on a go on a plane once a year.
0: So, are you saying that the big the big change has to be like, uh, say, road transport and flying? Like, we, we just need to get people out of the mindset that they, um, that or, or or get them thinking that that flying is a luxury that you should only do once a year or something like that. Make it special instead of a run of the mill thing.
1: I I would I so I'd disc, I think I. would mean, this just a conversation i i I would disconnect the two is my my gut feeling i think day-to-day travel to get your food to go to work and so on we can do that in many different ways and ways which are probably less time consuming not necessarily more expensive and potentially less expensive and possibly more equitable across across the population that sort of day-to-day everyday activities like driving and transport that's fine I think of flying as not a day-to-day activity certainly not for the vast majority of people so I think it's very difficult to say don't fly because it's terrible for the environment to everybody because actually the problem is just a very small group of people who fly a hell of a lot and fly on multiple holidays as well as multiple business trips that double up as holidays and so on So I think that's that's so I think there's a difference between the two
0: this is really interesting for me because like, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of where we can target our, our effort in, in, in terms of making the biggest impact in reducing carbon. And I'm thinking, OK, all right, if we if we sort out the, the issue with um, uh, swapping over the fuels in, in long haul flights, like from from uh, kerosene to, to hydrogen, then then people can fly and that's fine. And, and then we look at the behavior change on the day to day.
1: One of the the great things about being at Bristol and and the the Cabot Institute and so on is it does create a space and an opportunity for, well, the conversation, you know, these are reasonably typical conversations that that colleagues have who are members of the Cabot Institute. I think that's really, really important because you can then start to think about how behaviour change, different ways of organising life and the technological um, innovations that are available, how you can bring them together. To create sort of whole system solutions I mean that's really really important um you know my bugbear and I you know I'll let I won't t- speak to you is that I just don't think policy is coordinated in that way I don't think policy brings things together in in those kinds of ways I think um it tends to be very very narrowly focused on particular sectors or particular technologies um sometimes you see an overemphasis on behavior change sometimes you see an overemphasis on market led solutions sometimes you see an overemphasis on technological fixes and it would be great if in terms of developing policy you could develop more coordinated approaches and bring together these insights in the way that we we're sort of talking about at this at the moment but i don't know what your experience is with policy sort of led solutions do you have frustrations or
0: well, uh, I, I suppose the the interactions I've had have always been on the technological side, like uh, so, getting getting through to politicians. T- but because take the um, you know the argument of, of battery electric vehicles, or um, like so so you know how we were talking about infrastructure. You need the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, to enable people to use the cars when they buy them. They won't put the infrastructure in until enough people have bought cars and people won't buy cars until you've got the infrastructure it's really chicken and egg and so you, you need you need policymakers to make a commitment uh, to to prompt that behavioral change and so i guess we've always been been discussing this idea that you need you need lots of different technologies for for different applications it's really got to be a mix of of, of different solutions um, and so I've always approached it from a, a technology angle, but but now I'm wondering like, is is there something that we can do to like as 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 scientists, as engineers, to 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 influence the way that policymakers think
1: about yeah, I mean I think that the point you made that about a mix of solutions is is absolutely critical. I think it's really, really critical. I think I don't know enough about the the kinds of policy debates around um, the infrastructural chicken and egg problem that you you just you just raised, but I think the problem, as I understand it, is that for politicians, it's kind of if you bet on technology X and build the infrastructure for technology X, and you get it wrong. So they've got to be absolutely certain that technology X is the technology, and it, that creates all sorts of delays and slowness and so on, rather than thinking technology X if it's accompanied by organisational shifts of the type we've been talking about, behavioural shifts. And actually, this is the direction of travel anyway. People are already not buying cars and spending more money on renting and leasing, and that's happening in other sectors as well, around entertainment and communications. We pay for lots of service packages rather than owning things nowadays. So if they see that as the general trend, then you can build together... a policy which means you can get on and invest in technology X and you can have more confidence that technology X is a key part of an overall package of solutions. So I think we could do with more of that kind of conversation. I know that Bristol has got the one city plan which um, Cabot Institute and many of our colleagues have been heavily involved in and this is for the Bristol city and that does try to offer a a, a mechanism for coordinating mixed solutions to some of the major problems that, that the city faces and that's a I mean I'll describe it as an experiment because it's quite new but I mean it'd be really interesting to see what happens because Bristol's already pretty much at the forefront I think of finding environmental solutions and equitable solutions to the issues that the city faces so it'd be, be quite interesting to see how that goes.
0: Well, like uh, I, I guess you're you're thinking the same as me. Like if, if, like these sorts of um, experiments, because the the problems are so complex and all of the solutions are so interwoven that 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 leads to that uncertainty and the uncertainty paralysis for government investment. So if you if you can demonstrate that on a smaller scale and say yes, this this will work as long as we uh, we consider these these uh, I guess. The intersection of, of of different solutions, or or consider um, this issue that we we didn't know would arise, like that taking taking that sort of uncertainty out and being able to to model that complex system and then extrapolate out to what it would be like on a national
1: level. Yeah, and there's lots of techniques for modelling complex systems, which are, which are come from both the sort of more qualitative social science through to you know really hard uh, quantitative metric based engineering i mean i'm caricaturing too too huge <laughs> but there, there are a whole range of um systems level tools that can be used for thinking about the technological shifts that are needed the infrastructural shifts that are needed the human organizational shifts and so on and this it so the tools are all out there, but I just don't know if they're really used that much. I, I mean, there are is some evidence that, research councils are funding whole systems approaches. You know, in terms of research grants, more that's become quite popular in recent years. So food systems and so on. That be so. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Like, and
0: well, I'm, I'm just thinking of something else you said about the the social element, because I, I think we we often forget um, that the things that we make and, and the systems that we put out there have to be used by actual people. <laughs> and and if, if, if it's something that's so difficult or unusable or, or like if people hate it, then, then it'll never get traction. It'll, it'll cause more problems than it solves. And so that, that real-world testing to, to see how, how people are going to interact with their technology that's something that we always forget as engineers oh, sorry I'm speaking for myself other engineers are probably way better at it than me
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's always the gag I think you're I think you're probably very good at it better than better than most engineers but perhaps <laughs> perhaps I cast aspersions on people but there, there is also an, I think though on on in the spirit of that I mean the Cabot Institute is fantastic for bringing together people but you know, we all know we're all constrained by you know our day jobs <laughs> in a sense with all the work and so it would be really good if the if the UK government invested some money in developing capacity for more re- interaction between different disciplinary expertise so because it's very much focused on particular projects or particular research grants at the moment but just more space for these kinds of conversations so the Social scientists can understand better where engineers are coming from, what engineers are talking about, and vice versa, and not just social science and engineering, which is, you know, and actually, engineering is a big catch all category for a whole range of disciplines and subfields, as is social science. So, there could be much more done, I think, around having a sort of national interdisciplinary center of excellence on environmental solutions or something like that i mean cabot does that for the university of bristol but you know, policymakers policy makers give us those more money so we can do so we can solve, solve the problems
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I i do think uh like in in, in terms of, of cabot like uh, it it is a, a really nice example of of I, I i guess drawing on the the expertise in bristol because we're We're really lucky we've got this broad interdisciplinary um, base of of fundamental research and and science. And and people are doing so many different things and looking at problems from from so many different viewpoints. And then being able to to bring that together and to to use other people as a sounding board as well.
1: These kinds of safe, neutral spaces that are created, and there's a lot of work that goes into doing that. I think that's really, really important when it comes to finding these kind of mixed solutions, bringing the evidence to bear to help inform policymakers and for us to be able to, as academics, as as scholars, be able to talk more consistently and coherently when when engaging with policymakers and businesses and, and strategies. I think that's really, really important. And there's not enough investment in the UK research infrastructure, to enable those kinds of safe spaces to happen in my opinion yeah
0: yeah well I, I think you're absolutely right because the more practice that that we get at being able to explain what's what's important and, and valuable in, in our own research areas to people outside outside of those research areas if we can do that in an engaging simple way then, then that makes it so much easier to explain it to someone who's making policy. It or...
1: really does. It really does because, you know, you know what academics are like. We can have really wonderful, great, long, detailed conversations with the other 10 people who are experts in our field. <laughs> when, we try, when we try to explain it to our mum or uh, <laughs> our partners or a friend down the pub, they're dozing off within seconds. And so, yeah, we do need to find ways to be able to to communicate and explore um, different ideas more coherently I think yeah
0: so if you're having a, a just a general conversation then the 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 more you can you can get people thinking about these ideas and, and getting them uh, thinking about behavior change and, and the impacts it can make. Like it can only be a positive thing, right?
1: Yeah. And that's one of my concerns about the whole net zero thing is that it seems more of a target than a strategy. And you know a strat. you know it's a fine target <laughs> nothing wrong with it as a target but you know what what's the strategy for achieving it that that involves developing understanding and connections and collaborations and find creating opportunities for you know different groups to find solutions so we've lots of it's top down at the moment lots of it's kind of big big energy infrastructure technologies but you know there's lots of scope for you know it's the transitions movement in the UK over the last 15 years, which is just an encouragement of innovation, technological and social innovation in local towns. And you could become a transition town and you had, you know, local um, wind power generated energy, you know, because members of communities got together and and developed them. Those sorts of things are as important, I think, as some of the major big investments in offshore wind power which are also really really important even though they operate at different scales in terms of the impact is in terms of um, moving us in a direction towards what could be seen as net zero those are really those are really important parts of a strategy so i do worry that sometimes net zero is only thought about or is dominated as a target rather than as a strategy for for developing you know the way that our societies are going to going to change because they yeah. will change whatever we do
0: yeah, well, I, I, I think, well, and one thing I hasn't I haven't got clear in my mind yet is, um, so if you've got all of these, um, say these businesses or these sectors or these these uh, even regions and invested in this idea of net zero, we're, we're all interconnected globally, right? <laughs> and so, so where does your boundary of of your zero emissions sit? And and are you just displacing the um, the problem somewhere else along the supply chain.
1: It's a massive problem and do you count those emissions based on Consumption activities or production activities So we'll get if we don't if we measure our emissions in terms of our product, uh, production productive output We'll get to net zero a lot quicker than if we measure it by our consumption but much, of, much of the emissions for my, con, for my consumption and your consumption is counted in China where the made that we buy,
0: so it, it really has to be. Uh, it's going back to this coordination idea that um, that you had, that like this this thinking of that policymakers have to collaborate across across governments. Um, yeah, we all have to be moving in the same direction.
1: There's not a singular answer or singular way of measuring or counting for and I think you know many of our colleagues would be very nervous about focusing so explicitly on net zero because there are many other issues out there like um, ecological emergencies, um, impacts on our oceans and so on that are, are as problematic as simply the question of net zero, of carbon. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's right. And then, then thinking about the, the impacts on, on different parts of society and, and different parts of the world as well. So yeah, is, is getting to net zero at the expense of, of, of people's livelihoods or lifestyles, like, yeah. But I'm, I'm guessing that if we can consider these things like uh, as, as a whole system or holistically from the beginning, hopefully we'll, we'll head off a lot of these problems
1: That's why I think it's so important that we open up the the different forms of dialogue and conversation, both in in terms of interdisciplinarity and have the safe spaces to have those kinds of conversations, which I'm not sure we always do, particularly not in sort of policy type circles where there's such a rush to get to the answer. The question is how, how how can we transition the whole sets of systems in directions that will make us more sustainable and more equitable? And what would that future look like? That's the conversation that needs to be had, I think. And we don't have that conversation. We don't have, that I'm aware of, conversations about what will life look like in 2030 in the UK? Will it be more travel, less travel? Will it be hydrogen, electric? Will it be people owning cars or not owning cars? We don't have that conversation. And the idea that these things we can't have those conversations because these things will just happen because markets markets follow patterns of demand and supply and demand I think is not not true I think you know we do have some capacity to direct our future to direct ourselves in terms of the types of future we want and therefore what the future should be should be part of a public debate so the climate assemblies were good for that purpose So I liked the climate assembly um, approach colleagues from Bristol were involved in that, which was really, really good. think um, Bristol, like, probably a very high representation of the of the people involved in Bristol University in terms of experts and so on. But I think that's a really good way of opening up and bringing in different voices to have a conversation about, okay, here's the challenges. What sorts of future society do we want? Not you or I want, or I mean, we'd probably have similar views, but, um, you know, the old lady down the road who um you know she'll have different values and different different opinions different different groups based on you know age ethnicity sexual orientation so on all of these voices need to be be included in these conversations I think but very much with a where do we want to get to not just let's have a chat about all the problems in the world. So if you had one message for policymakers, what would what would it be?
0: So my message would probably be that there's not one single solution. So we we have to investigate a, a range of diverse solutions for different applications and those solutions all need investment. What what would you tell them?
1: Mine's sort of twofold. One is in a sense to stop reinventing the wheel. So I think that over the, I mean, I've been in this, working in this field for sort of 20 years and we have trends and things come, come and go and, you know, at one point it's behaviour change, then it's really focused on technology fixes, um, and then you go back to behaviour change. And the lessons learned from the last round of behaviour change initiatives seem to have been lost. And that's partly to do with the change of people in government or in, in policy. So there needs to be, you know, we need to build on existing knowledge, not continually reinvent and go back to existing knowledge. And I think we need to be much more open to... Um, debates about what sort of future society can we have not do we want but can we have including the technological capabilities and options including the way we might organize our day-to-day lives and so on so I think we should have that as a public debate.
0: You can find out more about the Cabot Institute for the Environment at bristol.ac.uk forward slash cabot.